All right, well, good morning again. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19? Matthew 19. As we come this morning to our study of Matthew's Gospel, we see Jesus and his disciples making their way toward Jerusalem and the final events that would lead up to his crucifixion. In fact, they're not too far from the city of Jericho, which is about 28 miles from Jerusalem. At this point in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is just a few weeks from the cross. In fact, chapter 21 opens up with the triumphal entry, which is four days before his crucifixion. So we're getting very near now the final events that would lead up to his crucifixion, and then, of course, his resurrection. And we want to pick it up this morning in verse 23, where it says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you, that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, really, this is a continuation from a section that we studied last time. We haven't been in Matthew's Gospel for a couple of weeks. But the last time we were in chapter 19, we saw how a young, wealthy leader of a synagogue came to Jesus one day and wanted to know how he might have eternal life. Now, Jesus determined that this man loved his money so much that it had become an idol in his life to the degree that uh, it was keeping him from really following Jesus with all of his heart. And so Jesus, of course, had a way of knowing what it was that was hindering people from really following him. Now, he gives to this man a unique command, not a universal command, as we're going to see Jesus is not saying to everybody who has money, you want to be my disciple, you got to give it all away. But for this guy, his money was on the throne of his heart. And whatever it is that is really occupying our heart and hindering us from truly obeying Christ and following him all the way, the Lord will tell us that's got to go. Whether it's a relationship, whether it's a career choice, it might be money, it might be something else. Whatever it might be, he wants to be supreme. We can't add him to our life. He wants to be our life. Whatever it is, though, that is keeping a person from really following Jesus, that thing has to go. And so Jesus put his finger on this young guy's problem. He came to Jesus. Good master, what must I do to have eternal life? Jesus said to him, keep the commandments. Keep the commandments? That's strange. I'll get the CD from last time. We talked about why the Lord told him that. But this young guy responded, well, I've kept all these from my youth. What do I still lack? Verse 21, Jesus said, well, if you want to be perfect, if you want to be sure, then go sell what you have and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Now, after this man left Jesus, Jesus turned to his disciples and said, verse 23, that's the context now, Assuredly I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, there is an interpretation of this that I want to make known to you. I don't know how common it is, but I've heard it before. In fact, one of the commentators that I happen to like, G. Campbell Morgan, who's with the Lord, uh, of course, but uh, was a great man of God and has written some very uh, 
wonderful commentaries on Scripture. Listen to what he said about Jesus' statement, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven. Morgan said, and I quote, in Jerusalem, all commerce would stop when the gates of the city of Jerusalem were closed on the Sabbath day and every evening at sunset. All commerce stopped because camels and caravans could no longer come in. But there was a little gate called the Needle Gate, which was actually a gate inside the main gate. It could be opened to allow access and egress to only one person at a time. The only way a camel could possibly get through this Needle Gate, this very small subgate, would be if all the baggage was removed from his back and if he crawled through the gate on his knees. Now, I'm not sure how a camel does that. What I've heard was they would have to take everything off and then somebody would have to pull from the front and push from the back. And that's how you'd squeeze this camel through this little subgate called the needle gate. And uh, there are those people, and again, I'm not sure how many hold of this interpretation, who believe that that's what Jesus is alluding to right here. That the only way for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven is if he lays all his material possessions down and is willing to crawl on his knees into the kingdom. Now that sounds good, but there's a couple of problems with that. First of all, there is absolutely no archaeological evidence from history that a small subgate called the Needle Gate, or as some others have called it, the Needle's Eye Gate, ever existed. Secondly, the word used for needle in this passage in the Greek is a word in the Greek that means a literal sewing needle. In fact, it was also used of a surgeon's needle. After he had performed surgery, they would use the needle and, of course, uh, sutures to, to sew up the incision. It seems clear from the context, as we're going to see, that the Lord was not speaking of difficulty, but of impossibility. And I think this is reinforced by the disciples' reaction to Jesus' statement. when the, Verse 25, when his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? Now you see, if they understood Jesus to mean that what he was really saying is that entering into the kingdom of God for a rich man was very difficult. Like a camel being stuffed through this little needle gate, all right, difficult but still possible with enough effort. Well, if that was the disciples' understanding of what Jesus was saying, they would not have been greatly astonished, or in other words, incredibly shocked by what he said. Nor would they have responded, and I'm paraphrasing, if a rich man can't be saved, what hope is there for the rest of us? You see, they understood what Jesus was saying. They, that's why they were so shocked. As we're going to see in a moment, their theology ran contrary to everything Jesus was saying. But that's why they were so shocked, all right? They understood what he was saying. Not that it was simply hard for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. Listen, it was impossible. Now, let me just stop and say this, so you don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Jesus is not saying that wealth prohibits people from entering into the kingdom of heaven. We discussed this last time in detail. Possessing wealth does not keep a person out of heaven. Please understand that. We see guys in the Old Testament like Abraham, Job, Solomon, just to name a few, who were all wealthy men who believed in the God of Israel and were saved. Some ancient manuscripts 
of Mark 10, 24, the parallel passage reads this way. Jesus said, how hard is it for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God? And I believe that's the correct idea. And it was certainly the problem with the rich young ruler, which then led to Jesus teaching on this subject, not that having wealth kept the person out of heaven. Rich people can go to heaven. It was that if a person was trusting in their wealth to get them into heaven, that would keep them out of heaven. Now, why would a rich person trust in their riches to get them into heaven? We have to understand the cultural mindset of that day among the Jewish people and also among Jesus' disciples who had bought into this whole thing. I mean, they were raised with a cultural mindset uh, and a theology that reinforced the idea that wealth was a blessing of God upon a righteous person. The way that the rabbis, uh, the way that they figured was this way. They said, look, God doesn't bless evil people or unrighteous people with wealth. Money is a blessing of God, okay? You have a lot of money, it proves that you're a righteous guy because God doesn't bless the unrighteous. And they pointed again to guys like Abraham, Job, Solomon, all very wealthy people, righteous men. And they said, see, this is what we mean, that riches are an evidence of God's blessing upon a person's life because they are righteous. They also further believe that by giving to the poor, a person could further earn God's favor and listen, basically buy their way into heaven. And since the rich had the most money to do this, well, the common belief held by the Jewish people on the subject was that generous rich people, listen to me, were pretty much guaranteed a place in heaven. So if you were wealthy, that was because God was blessing you because you were righteous. If you gave some of that wealth to the poor, Wow, that, you really earned God's favor, and you could basically buy your way into heaven by giving money to the poor. Now, that was the cultural mindset. That's what the disciples believed. That's how they grew up. So when Jesus said it's hard for a rich man to get into heaven, they're like, wow, that kind of really was like a, a bombshell being dropped on their thinking. Of course, Jesus did this a lot with these guys. Uh, but, you know, not to be too hard on them, they were the product of their cultural thinking. It's like we are in a lot of ways, all right? But Jesus said just the opposite of what they were used to. He is saying here, it is, he says, assuredly I say to you. This is a, a word that means I'm emphasizing this as strongly as I know how. Assuredly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. Hard in the sense that it's impossible. It would be like saying it's hard for a quadriplegic to climb Mount Everest all by him or herself. Yeah, it's really hard. Hard in the sense of it's impossible, all right? That's what he is really saying. And it doesn't just apply to the wealthy who are sinners. For when the disciples said to him, and I'm paraphrasing again, if a rich man can't be saved... What hope is there for the rest of us? Jesus kind of expanded the application of his teaching to include all mankind when he said, with men, listen, with fallen mankind, this is impossible. With fallen mankind, what is impossible? Getting into heaven by trusting in yourself. Trusting in your good works to get you there. Trusting in the fact that you're religious 
or ultra-moral, and you go to church or back then to temple. And, of course, back then the Jews kept, uh, religious Jews kept all the uh, feast days and holy days and new moons and Sabbaths, and they brought the animal sacrifices to the Lord and so on. Uh, Jesus is saying that, look, none of that is going to get you into heaven. Even if you take your wealth and use it to help the poor, which is a good thing to do, even that won't earn you heaven because you can't earn heaven by your good works or anything you do. It is impossible. It's impossible. Turn to John chapter 3 because Jesus really drove this home very clearly in a passage that we're all familiar with. Now you have to understand the context of John 3. A Pharisee came to him by night whose name was Nicodemus. So here we have the original Nick at night. All right. Um, yes, I know. All right. Um, but you'll never forget that again, will you? You'll never forget that. Um, now, in our culture, the word Pharisee has become synonymous with hypocrite. But they weren't all hypocrites. Most of them were. But you had some very sincere, well-intentioned Pharisees. Saul of Tarsus was one. Nicodemus was another. And there were a few others. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus one night under the cover of darkness because, you know, he represented a small group of Pharisees that had come to believe that Jesus Christ might, in fact, be the Messiah. Now, they didn't want to let that be known among all the other Pharisees because most of the other Pharisees hated Jesus with a passion and wanted to see him, wanted to see him killed. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night and begins to engage the Lord in a conversation. This is the context of what we're talking about, but I want to jump down to verse 13. I want you to notice, though, that Jesus Christ is speaking now to an ultra-religious man. And I say that because the Jews thought if only two people ever made it into heaven, and only two people, one would be a Pharisee, the other would be a scribe, because these two groups were the most holy, the most righteous of any of the people in Israel. See, if you don't understand that, that he's talking to a person that they all thought was one of the only people that would make it into heaven, a Pharisee named Nicodemus, you have to understand the context. And Jesus said to this ultra-religious man, verse 13, Nicodemus, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man, who is in heaven. And right here in this opening statement that we're looking at, Jesus contrasts Christianity with every other religion, and primarily Judaism, of course, on the face of the earth. Because every religion that believes in God, believes in heaven, is always built on the idea that if we do enough good things, if we help the poor, if we go to church, if we light the candles and pray the rosary, or help in the soup kitchen, or whatever it might be, we can build ourselves a little stairway into heaven. We can ascend into heaven by our good deeds. And Jesus says, that's religion, Nicodemus. Nobody ever got to heaven that way. Christianity says, God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son who came down from heaven. See it there in verse 13? Nobody ever ascended to heaven, but the son of man came down, right? He condescended to where we are. We couldn't ascend to where he is, so he came down. The human race was like that old uh, commercial, I've fallen and can't get up. Well, that was the human race, all right? In Adam, we had all fallen and couldn't get up. We couldn't help ourselves, so God came down to help us. Verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, 
Even so, the Son of Man must be lifted up, speaking of the cross, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Not perish in hell, but have everlasting life in heaven. Verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Look, humanly speaking, it is impossible for anyone to ascend or to climb up into heaven by their good works. Only Jesus could save us. And he did so by coming down, becoming one of us, lived the perfect life we couldn't live. He was the only one who deserved eternal life, who was perfect. The only one who could die for sinners, right? Because sin was a debt that had to be paid. Sinners can't die for sinners. Even in the Old Testament, when the when God had to bring the animal sacrifices, the animals had to be without spot or blemish, just a way of God saying they had to be perfect. But they were only a substitute, a temporary covering, until the ultimate sacrifice for sin. The perfect spotless Lamb of God could come and die for our sins, taking them out of the way, cleansing our account for anyone who would receive Christ as Lord and Savior. Our account would be marked paid in full. All our sins would be taken away, and we could have eternal life through what Jesus Christ himself did now when we talk about nobody is good enough to get into heaven i mean there you know we're going to talk about that more in just a moment but the idea that the human race can't ascend to heaven because nobody's good enough that jesus christ came down let me just say this most of the people in the world today don't see it this way do they they don't see themselves as sinners who have nothing listen to offer god to get into heaven on the contrary, most people in our society uh, consider themselves good people. Although, while not perfect, they'll admit that, they still think they're good enough to get into heaven. They believe, although they're not perfect, they can still do enough good works to ascend into heaven, even though Jesus said nobody's ever done that. But you see, that's the problem, because Jesus said, if you're not, people say, well, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm good enough. And Jesus said, that's the problem, if you're not perfect, you're not good enough to get into heaven. Because the Bible defines goodness as moral perfection. And since none of us are morally perfect because all of us have sinned, right? Paul said that in Romans. All have sinned and fallen short of God's perfect standard. Therefore, all of us have sinned. None of us are good. A point that Jesus made very clear in verse 17, when the rich young ruler came to him and said, Good master, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said, Why do you call me good? There is nobody good but God. Are you calling me good because you believe I'm God? But if Jesus would have said, look, there is nobody as good as God. Well, everyone would have said, well, certainly I don't think I'm as good as God, but I think I'm still good enough to get into heaven. And Jesus said, there is nobody good but God. There is no one good but God. This idea that I'm a good person, who told you you were a good person? Jesus didn't say you were a good person. God never said we were good people. We have to see what he says about us, right? Now, when Jesus said that it's impossible for a person trusting in their wealth to get into heaven, the disciples responded, well, then who can possibly be saved? Because if the rich can't get there, if the rich, you know, who can give money to the poor, if they can't earn heaven, who can possibly get into heaven then? Jesus said, with men, it's what? Very hard? It's really hard, all right? But if you work hard enough, like stuffing that camel through that little gate, 
You know, if you work really hard at it and go to church out every day and light candles and pray the rosary, I'm talking about my Catholicism and my background, you know, that's where we were taught, you know, and just do all these good things. If you do it uh, long enough and hard enough and so on, you with enough effort can work your way into heaven. That's not what he said, did he? He didn't say it's really hard, but you can make it if you try hard enough. He said, with men, with fallen mankind, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. We can't do it. We can't earn salvation. But Christianity is all about God loved us so much he sent his son to come down, to become one of us, to die in our place, that we might get to heaven through him. See, the good news, and, and you know, you have one, people today on one end of the spectrum who think they're good and therefore good enough to get into heaven. On the other end of the spectrum, you've got some people who say, I'm so bad, God will never let me into heaven. I mean, you don't know the life I've lived. I mean, I'm so bad, I'm so rotten, I can't believe God would even want me in heaven. Well, the good news is that Jesus Christ is inviting all people to be a part of his kingdom. All people to be saved, no matter how bad they are, no matter how many sins they've committed. I mean, that's good news, isn't it? That's what the word gospel means. Look, if salvation's a gift that we don't earn, well, your good works can't earn it, but your bad works don't cause you to forfeit it. It's a gift. And he's not discriminating by saying it's only a gift for moral people. He is saying God so loved the entire world that he gave his only begotten son. In 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4, Paul said, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires for all mankind to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's good news, isn't it? That's what the word gospel means. Usually, good news isn't really good news unless it fixes something that's bad. If you're involved in something that, if you've got bad news going on, all right, I mean, if you come to the doctor, if you, your tests come back, you go to the doctor uh, to hear your test results, and the doctor says, I've got bad news, you have got a terminal disease. Oh my goodness, that's bad news. The good news is we have a new, new medicine that will cure you. Oh, that is good news, right? It delivers me from something bad. The bad news is we are all fallen sinners. There's nothing we can do to change that. In Adam all die. We're all descendants of Adam, and therefore, when we are born into this world, the curse of Adam passed onto us, and therefore, all of us are hell-bound. And no matter how hard you try to work your way out of that, you, you can never do anything that will earn, earn heaven. Because heaven's for perfect people. Well, then who can possibly be saved? With men, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible in that Jesus lived the perfect life. When you give your heart to him, Paul the Apostle tells us you are placed in Christ. God doesn't see you in me anymore. He sees Jesus who is perfect. We are now accepted into heaven because we are in the beloved one. We're in Christ. Now, we've looked at what it takes to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Okay, There was a rich guy who wanted eternal life but was not willing to give up his wealth because he loved it too much. All right? It controlled him. It was a God in his life. And so Jesus deals, first of all, with what it takes to get into heaven. can't work your way in. can't buy your way in. you got to believe your way in. Right? Receive Christ. But after he talks about what it takes to enter into the kingdom of heaven, next he goes on because Peter asks a question, and Jesus then 
in answering Peter's question, tells us about the riches and treasures awaiting us who are members of the kingdom through Jesus Christ. Verse 27, Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? In other words, what's in it for us? you got to love Peter, don't you? There's no beating around the bush with him. Ever had to wonder what he was thinking? He's a straight shooter. Just told you what was on his mind. Here's what Peter is essentially saying to Jesus. Okay, Lord, those who love their money and possessions so much, they won't let go of them to follow you fully, can't be members of your kingdom. I get it. I understand that. But what about us, speaking of himself and the other disciples? You know, we have left earthly possessions. We have left our families in the sense that right now we are following you, right? We're traveling around with you. We've left our families and wives and children and we're serving you on the mission field. What about us? What's in it for us? You say, was Peter maybe in the flesh a little bit right here? Possibly. The interesting thing about it is Jesus didn't rebuke him for carnality. If Peter was wrong in, in this logic, I, I would imagine Jesus would have said, Peter, you carnal dirtbag. Are you ever going to get with the program? He didn't say that to him, did he? In fact, he held up the rewards of the Christian life as an incentive to continue serving him on the earth. Verse 28, so Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. The word regeneration there is a Greek word that literally means rebirth or new birth. It's only used one other time in the New Testament, that's Titus 3 verse 5, where the context is clearly speaking of our new birth, that the Holy Spirit gives to us once we put our faith in Jesus Christ. The scriptures teach that someday the earth is going to undergo a new birth, a rebirth. Paul talks about this in Romans 8. The idea is that when Adam and Eve, primarily Adam, sinned in the garden, he not only brought a curse on mankind, but on all of God's creation. And Paul says in Romans 8, the whole creation is groaning right now waiting to be delivered, waiting to undergo a new birth, waiting to be returned to a time before the fall. In fact, the word regeneration there is a Greek word that literally means back to Genesis. All right, back to Genesis. Back to a time before the fall. When God originally made the creation, stepped back and said, it is what? It is good. When sin entered the creation, it was corrupted. It became bad. We not only see in human, the human race the evil, the violence, the immorality, and so on, we see in the animal kingdom even, the carnivorous animals. You realize in the kingdom age, and that's what we're talking about here, the time when Jesus Christ returns uh, to the earth to establish his kingdom, the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ, the Bible says that the, even the animal kingdom is going to be returned to the time prior to the fall. You're not going to have carnivorous animals in the kingdom age. The lion will lie down with the lamb, right? The bear with the, with the cow. Uh, you know, they're all going to graze. Uh, there's not going to be any carnivorous activity. Even the child will play by the snake's hole, put their hand inside there, and not be bit because none of these things are going to be, God says, 
my people will not be hurt by anything in the creation ever again. God's going to return the earth to the time before the fall, basically. But this is what Jesus Christ is talking about here. He is talking about how when he comes, he is going to set up his kingdom. And he is going to reign over the entire earth from Jerusalem. Now, when he returns the second time, he is going to resurrect the Old Testament saints. Of course, they're in heaven right now with their soul and spirit, but their bodies will be resurrected, okay? And when he resurrects the Old Testament saints, he is telling the 12 apostles. And there is a disagreement as to who the 12th apostle is. When Judas took his life, remember uh, in Acts chapter 1, they cast lots to replace him. And the lot fell on Matthias. He was numbered with the 11. He became one of the 12, right? Others, like myself, believe, well, they rushed things. They weren't really spirit-filled yet. Uh, God had a guy in mind, namely Paul the Apostle, who would come down the pike. And I believe, and many others believe, Paul was the 12th Apostle. You say, does it matter that much? For right now, no. All right? For right now, no. I just want you to understand something. Know that the 12 Apostles during the Kingdom Age are going to sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes, or the nation of Israel. Now, you have to understand something, that when the millennial kingdom is established for the first time in Israel's history, they are going to possess all the land that God gave to them. We see that land mapped out in the first chapter of Joshua, where God said to Joshua, I want you to go ahead and take the children of Israel and conquer all the land I've given you. And what was the parameters of the land? God says it extends from Lebanon to the north, to the Negev to the south, to the Euphrates to the east, the Mediterranean Sea to the west. That was the land that God originally gave them. Look at a map of Israel today and see what a little tiny sliver they actually have compared to what God promised them. Even in Joshua's day, they didn't come close to conquering all that land. Why? They got tired of fighting and wanted to settle down and just enjoy the blessings. And that's a problem when you don't go all the way. And in fact, you settle for less than what God has promised you. But someday the 12 apostles will sit on thrones. Of course, Jesus Christ it will be the king of kings in the millennial kingdom, the Lord of lords. But under him, he'll have, you know, under kings, under lords that will rule over the face of the earth. The 12 apostles will rule over Israel. But listen. The Bible says, and Jesus himself said primarily that all of us who are children of God, as we serve the Lord now in this life faithfully, it will determine our degree of authority in the kingdom age. And it doesn't matter the size of your ministry. It only matters how faithful you were in discharging your ministry. So anyone who is a Christian who serves the Lord faithfully, I don't care if you're called to be a Sunday school teacher or a Billy Graham. If you're faithful in doing what God's called you to do, you will be put over various cities in the kingdom age to be a ruler under Christ over those areas. Verse 29, Jesus said, Before that day comes, though, right now, right now as we're living our lives on the earth, he says in verse 29, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold the ideas right now and inherit eternal life in heaven someday. What does he mean by leaving brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, wives, children? What does that mean? 
Well, the Lord is simply saying that sometimes in the course of serving him, we leave our families for a time. I'm thinking of missionaries who at times will leave their families for a while to serve the Lord. Uh, of course, God never calls a, a, a husband or a wife to abandon their family, but there are times like in the military, we'll say. You've got people in the military, tomorrow's Veterans Day, but you have people that throughout uh, the history of our nation have had to leave their families to go on foreign soil and defend our liberty. It's the same idea. Sometimes in the service of God, we are called away from our families for a time to conduct our ministries. And Jesus is saying that when you do that, guess what? Or know this, everywhere you go to serve me, you will have family. You'll have Christian family, right? You'll have brothers and sisters and moms and dads and people will open up their homes to you. Because whenever you serve God, no matter where you go in the world, God will make sure that there is family in Christ that will open up their homes to you, that will be a parent to you, provide for you as you serve him, right? You'll have family in Christ. That's the interpretation, isn't it? I mean, what else could it be? If you, if you give up these things now, and again, the idea is to serve me on the mission field for a time, uh, I will make sure that you have a hundred times what you've left behind everywhere you go. You'll have a place to stay and family that will take care of you. I reject thoroughly the word of faith interpretation of this passage. They define this as Jesus was saying, if you give up houses and property, right? When they say if you give up, in their minds, what they're saying is that you donate houses and property to their ministry is what they're saying, right? They're the only ones getting rich off of this teaching, by the way, all right? But if you give up, or in other words, donate to the ministry, these things, then God will give to you a hundred times that back. I'll just quote to you something Gloria Copeland said years ago. Gloria is, of course, the wife of Kenneth, who are uh, very big into the Word of Faith movement, have a big ministry built on this theology. And she's really quoting out of Mark 10, which is the parallel passage of Mark, or excuse me, of Matthew 19 that we're studying uh, about Jesus said, you'll, if you give up these things, you'll have a hundredfold in return. And uh, Gloria enthusiastically declares, and I quote, if you give a dollar for the gospel's sake, a hundred dollars belongs to you. Uh, you give $10 and receive 1000 Give Give $1,000 and receive $10,000. I know you can multiply, she said, but I want you to see it in black and white. Give one airplane and receive 100 times the value of the airplane. Give one car and the return would furnish you a lifetime of cars. In short, Mark 1030 is a very good deal. It's a very good deal. Folks, that isn't selfless giving to God out of a love for the work of his kingdom and seeing people saved. It's selfish investing in my kingdom on the earth. Again, one author had a right when he said, and I quote, in this life they enjoy a worldwide, talking about true believers now, in this life they enjoy a worldwide fellowship of believers uh, that more than compensates for severed earthly ties. Sometimes it's not that you, le you leave your family when you get saved to serve the Lord in the mission field, sometimes when you become a Christian, your family disowns you. You lose them because they can't handle your Christianity. But God has 
family in Christ all over the world that will be a substitute. For in this life they enjoy a worldwide fellowship of believers that more than compensates for severed earthly ties. For the one house they leave, they receive a hundred Christian homes where they are warmly welcomed. For lands or other forms of wealth forsaken, they receive spiritual riches beyond reckoning. And of course, the ultimate future reward for all believers is eternal life in heaven. Now, this is as far we're going to get today because verse 30 actually belongs to chapter 20. But the first 16 verses of chapter 20 belong to chapter 19. It's kind of confusing, isn't it? I just want you to know that because next week we'll look at these verses. But in reality, understand it's all the same context. It's all the same context. I don't want you to think that chapter 20 begins a whole separate idea. It's all the same context, and we'll show you how it all fits together next week. But let me just end by saying this. The Lord in these verses, verses 23 to 29, is dealing with two very important issues. Two very, the first one is very familiar to all of us who are evangelicals. And that is this. But let me just say this. What is obvious to us, if you look at the people in our society who have a cultural mindset with regard to heaven, those who believe in heaven, they believe, how many people do you know that are religious, we'll say, who still think that by going to church, observing certain feast days and rituals and helping the poor earns God's favor and will basically allow you uh, entry into heaven because of what you're doing. See, that's religion. Religion is spelled D-O. It's all about what you do. Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E, done. Jesus said it is finished. He did all the work. But for all, those of us who are evangelicals, we understand there is no way that we can do anything, anything to earn heaven. I don't care how moral you are. I don't care how generous you are. I don't care how committed you are in going to church and observing the rituals and ceremonies and all of your particular denomination. Jesus Christ is saying with men it is what? Impossible. We say amen, but most of our country is absolutely clueless. They think that it's through hard work and living a good life that we squeeze our way into heaven. Jesus says, no, no, no. With men, it's impossible. Nobody has ever ascended into heaven by their good works. We know it's a total gift of God's grace. And let me say this. A lot of wealthy people, their wealth has kept them out of heaven. But there are a lot of Christians who do love the Lord and are saved who are still hanging on too tightly to their possessions and it is keeping them from possessing all the blessings and rewards someday in heaven that God has for them, just like Israel. They failed to possess everything God has for them, had for them. Same is true with us as Christians. God has promised us great rewards in heaven, but they're not automatic. It all depends how we live our lives on the earth and how faithful we are in serving him. It's so important because today in America, especially because we've been so blessed with so much material things, most Americans, not you guys in this room, but most Americans think, you know why we're so blessed? Because we're the best guys on the block. We're the most righteous in all the world. How deceived is that? But you even have Christians who believe. 
Well, God has blessed me with so many material things because He loves me, because I'm, maybe I'm better than most Christians, and I'm going to just enjoy what God has given me. Now, what they're trying to do is serve two masters. The very thing Jesus said was impossible to do. He said, you can't serve two masters. You're going to either love the one and hate the other, or vice versa. You cannot serve God and mammon, which is money. That's why Joshua said, we have to choose whom we're going to serve. You know, if this section of Scripture teaches us anything, it teaches us that we ought to live our Christian lives with the motivation of entering into our reward someday. That, that's not a bad thing, to live your life for the Lord now, because someday you want to enter into treasure and riches that will never end. That's why we have such a privilege of using our wealth now. Not that you have to give all your money to the poor if God's blessed you with money. You can enjoy with God, what God has given you, but don't hoard it. Paul says we only have a short time to use our blessings here on this earth to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. He said, look, if you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. He was talking about using our money now to build God's kingdom. If we use a little bit of our money for the work of the kingdom, we will have a little reward in heaven. If we use a lot of our money, God will bless us with great riches in heaven. It all becomes our choice. What do we want to do? How much do we want? You know, the old saying goes, you can't take it with you. There's no, there's no pockets in a shroud, right? You can't take your wealth with you, but you can send it, on, send it on up ahead by using it right now for the kingdom. And when you die, you will have treasures in heaven that will never fade away. I think as Americans, of course, because we have so much, this is important that we stop and go, look, I can't even read the morning paper without seeing signs of Jesus' return. I don't know how much longer we have. But however long we have, Lord, give me grace to live for you to the fullest and to use whatever you've given me for your glory that someday when I stand before you, I can hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. You were faithful in a few things. Now you have treasure waiting for you in heaven forever. So may God give us the grace to understand what he is communicating here. It's not carnal to live for Jesus with all your heart and say, you know, someday I'm looking forward to those rewards. It's not carnal. Jesus said, go for it. That's how you should live your life, not right now and wanting to get all the rewards now and way of material things but laying up for yourselves treasures in heaven that will be waiting for you when this life is over with may god give us the grace to think that way and to do those things father we thank you lord that we have the opportunity we have the blessing of lord taking what you've given to us and giving it back to you in the way of building your kingdom and Lord, there have been many, many wealthy Christian men and women who have owned much wealth but have never let their wealth own them. And they've used their wealth to build your kingdom. And Lord, they have great riches in heaven waiting for them. And Lord, give us the grace to be faithful in whatever you've called us to do. And to use our resources, Lord, doesn't mean we can't enjoy what you've given us. But give us grace not to hoard it but to spread it around 
to help others, to build your kingdom. Because, Lord, this life is so short, it'll soon be past. Only that which is done for Jesus Christ is going to last. So give us grace to live our life with that in mind. And we thank you, Lord, for all you've given us. What a blessing to take some of it, give it back to you, that we might be blessed for eternity. Lord, we ask all this now in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.